Katie Books Productions presents Lenny Gray, an audio drama written, produced, and narrated by Earl Sewell. Previously on Lenny Gray. Now that you're back home from the war to help out, we're going to make it, son. We're going to survive, and when Jesse and Earl get old enough, they'll be able to come out in the field and help us. Maybe one day... We'll get enough money to buy us one of them cotton machines. Curly reached out and rested his heavy and guilt-filled crippled hand on Willie's shoulders. I'm so glad you're home, son. I'm glad the war didn't take you away from us. Willie's stomach curdled like milk that had gone sour. Here's your plate, Willie. Eat up. Lenny Gray placed Willie's food in front of him. The scent of it made him nauseous. Willie? Something wrong with you? Lenny Gray asked concerned. Willie looked deeply into each of their eyes and tried to find the courage to tell them that he had no intentions of staying in Mississippi. Donovan had already helped him to get a job at a slaughterhouse and a kitchenette apartment in Chicago. Lenny Gray was at home with her children, the triplets, Leuna, Martha, and Christine, who were all nine years old. Lenny Gray II, who was eight, and Jesse, who was six, and Earl, who was five. Lenny Gray sat angrily braiding Christine's hair while Leuna, Martha, and Lenny Gray II waited their turn. Jesse and Earl were nearby shooting marbles and eating red clay dirt because there was no food. Over the past few years, Curly's drinking reduced him to the point where he couldn't function because he enjoyed staying out all night at the juke joint. He'd gotten old and the field work had taken its toll on his body and drinking had pickled his brain. As Lenny Gray continued her braiding, she thought about when everything began to spiral out of control. It started when Willie returned home from the war. She thought about how he had told her and Curly that he would rather go back to the war and pick up dead bodies than to remain in Mississippi. He told them about the job in the apartment he had and how he was going to move on, meet a woman, and live a better life. That wounded Curly deeply, because in his mind, he'd done all he could to keep them safe from harm, and his children were supposed to appreciate the life that he had built for them. They weren't supposed to leave. 
their hair was buried in a box under the house. He had set things up so that they could follow in his footsteps, live small, and free from trouble. I seen too much, Willie said. I've been all across this planet, and one thing that I didn't learn for myself is that this world got more things to offer than Mississippi. When Willie said what he needed to tell them, Curly blew up at him and tried to force him to stay in Mississippi through emotional manipulation. His weapons were guilt and responsibility to the family. He told Willie repeatedly that he could protect him from the clan and that there was nothing to worry about as long as he knew his place. Daddy, Willie said, I've been to war in Europe and Japan. I done lived through people shooting at me, bombs being dropped around me, and hand grenades thrown at me. I would rather go back to living like that than to stay here in Mississippi living on my knees. I don't care about the clan. They don't rule the world. Willie remained at home for a week and then left. Roosevelt, who hated working in the fields with a wheel mule that was crippled and a lead mule that had a blind eye, decided to take his chances with his brother in Chicago and left in 1948. A year later, in 1949, Minnie turned 18. Her sister Mary came to visit from Detroit, driving a new car and wearing fancy clothes, the likes of which Lenny Gray and Minnie had only seen in catalogs and on Miss Lily, the white lady from the government office. She bought dresses for her mother and sister and new clothes for her younger brothers and father. She told them that she had managed to finish high school and that she'd left Detroit and moved to Chicago where she found a better paying job working in the front office of a factory. Her children, Revel and Dorothy, were doing well in school and she was saving money for them to go to college. All of the good fortune Mary had since leaving Mississippi was unthinkable to Curly and Lenny Gray. Curly flat out called his daughter a liar and even suggested she was driving a stolen car just to protect his deflated ego and to hold on to his beliefs even though they were holding him back and caused him psychological pain. He could not accept that his limitations did not fall on his children. He did not understand because his father's Tom's limitations fell on him. Even though she produced paperwork that showed she owned the vehicle she was driving, Curly still chose to hold on to his belief that she was driving a stolen car, the same way Mr. Bettis had done him and his father. When he told himself that, something split apart inside of his mind. Something shattered. Afterwards, all Curly felt was pain, and the only thing that could ease it was more moonshine. When it was time for Mary to go, Minnie decided it was time for her to leave as well. She hated working in the fields just as much as her other siblings. Lenny Gray had just finished braiding Christine's hair and then sat Leuna between her legs so that her hair could be braided. Once she was finished, she looked at her children and felt something cold in her chest. It was emotional agony a pain that medicine or rest could not cure, a pain caused by the desire of her children to leave her lost in misery with Curly. These ones here are gonna leave me too, Lenny Gray thought to herself. Don't make no sense to get too attached to them. 
And with that thought, at a certain level, a door of closeness in her heart shut and locked itself from the inside. She would love her children, but not as deeply as she loved all the others who'd left or died. Lenny Gray stepped out onto the porch for some fresh night air. She knew Curly was down at the juke joint with the other men, listening to blues music and drinking. She had asked him to let her go with him, but he refused to. But that was okay, because like him, she liked to drink moonshine too. It helped to calm her nerves, especially during the time she was pregnant. Curly told her that she needed to teach their children better so that they wouldn't grow up and leave them suffering and struggling like the others had. He blamed her for their departure, and that upset her. The crowing of a rooster awoke Lenny Gray the following morning. Curly had not come home again, which meant she would have to go get him and bring him home. She would have to do what she could to help him sober up so that he could get out in the fields and do what he could to earn money to help with their small children. Lenny Gray stepped outside and looked in the direction of the juke joint. She sighed and shook her head disapprovingly before moving forward. When she arrived, she saw Curly staggering out of the juke joint. He spat on the ground and then looked at the rising sun and the horizon that was like a ball of fire. He stumbled down a few rickety steps and then began walking towards Lenny Gray. Uh, what you doing here? He growled at her as he placed his hands on his bald head. Curly, you got to stop all this foolishness of drinking and carrying out. We got children to feed and take care of. They need us. They need you. Yeah, no, they don't, Lenny. They're going to leave me. Curly. Oh, Curly. I don't know what to do. Lenny Gray tried to hold back her frustration. At that moment... Curly heard the sound of a horse clip-clopping, which caught his attention. Then appeared a pale horse, the likes of which Curly had never seen before. Morning, Curly. Lenny, said John, the one-armed gravedigger, who was rolling by in a wagon with a casket. You see this, Lenny? John, where you get that pale horse from? Curly. You're drunk. That ain't no horse. That's the same old mule, Lenny Gray said. Lenny, what's the matter? You done got so old you can't see no more? This is a fine-looking horse you got there, John, said Curly. Oh, who died? Curly asked. Nobody yet. I'm just waiting said John, bringing the wagon to a full stop. Curly walked up to the horse and began touching and stroking the animal's long snout. Uh, Lenny, come touch this horse. I ain't about to touch no mule, Curly, 
She can't see good, John, Curly whispered. Did you have yourself a real good time last night? John asked. Of course I did. I got my head real bad. <laughs> I'm a good Christian, you know. And uh, good Christians like me need to be respected, Curly said, looking up into John's eyes. He gawked at him curiously because his eyes were looking like flames flickering. Glad to hear it. When a good Christian like yourself has a wonderful time, it makes me oh so happy, said John. He looked around, then he said, Curly, I'm heading your way. You two want to ride home? Curly looked at Lenny Gray, who appeared to be under duress. Curly's body seemed to be more at ease than usual. For some reason unknown to him, nothing ached anymore. Not even his crippled hand. Come on, Curly. John, the one-armed gravedigger, enticed him to take up his offer. <laughs> what the fuck? I, feel, I don't feel like walking anyway, Curly said and hopped on the wagon and sat next to John. Lenny Gray got in back next to the empty coffin and allowed her weary legs to dangle off the back of the wagon. As the cart moved along, Curly turned and peeked inside the empty coffin and then tapped it against his knuckles a few times. Curly turned back around and looked into John's empty arm sleeve and asked, John, let me ask you something. What do you want to know, Curly? How is it that you dig graves with only one arm? And how is it that you haven't seemed to age none, John? Your hair didn't turn all gray and fall out, and your back ain't all busted up from digging all those graves. Whew. Boy, I tell you, I'm feeling something with that moonshine I've been drinking. Uh, and, and John, you look as young as you did 30 years ago. I know that ain't the moonshine talking because I'm looking at you. And John, you ain't changed at all. Uh, why is that, John? <laughs> Lean closer. I want to whisper the answer in your ear. Curly leaned in. He felt John's breath, which was so cold, it felt like his ear instantaneously turned into a block of ice. Curly couldn't hear a word. In fact, he couldn't hear anything at all. He felt a frostiness spreading across his face, arms, and legs. He repositioned himself so that he could face John. Curly tried to speak, but no words came forth. Then he blinked, 
and his eyesight disappeared. Then, there was nothing. 